In its heyday, Detroit was one of America's most significant contributors to the automobile industry, with a population of over one million. As the birthplace of Motown, it also heavily shaped the 1960s pop, R&B, and soul music scene. But this legacy saw a sharp social and economic decline, with its population plummeting from its peak by the thousands. Many of its formerly famous buildings sit empty and abandoned, left to wither as remnants of a time long since past. The high crime rates also have been a significant concern to those familiar with it, but things were not always this way. Today we discover the rise and fall of Detroit. I'm your host Ryan Sokash and you're watching It's History. In 1699, a French military leader and trader named Antoni Cadillac traveled hoping to establish a new settlement along the strait that connected Lake Erie and Lake Huron. At the time, the French government was sharply divided over Canadian expansion. They went back and forth depending on fur prices and whether or not war with England was imminent, and eventually allowed Cadillac to go through with his plan. This was because the government knew that King Louis had a plan to put his grandson on the Spanish throne and was almost sure it would cause a significant conflict with Britain. If the conflict sparked a war, establishing a garrison in the strait would offer a highly advantageous defense position that allowed France to control the river. Cadillac was accompanied by a group of settlers, soldiers, and Native Americans. He chose these particular groups in hopes of forming a community that could support military activity and profit from the fur trade himself. To do this, he needed an established community of Native Americans who would buy goods and services from merchants and artisans with their furs. However, Cadillac was far from popular with the budding community. He was so focused on lining his pockets that he quickly lost popularity with the settlers and sparked many conflicts between rival tribes. This tragic oversight led to much intertribal violence and death, especially for the Fox tribe. Cadillac left Detroit in 1711, no more prosperous than he was when he started. France's long-standing peace with Britain was also a double-edged sword, as it caused the French government to neglect Detroit and its other minor garrisons as they served no immediate use. At the time, the fur trade in Detroit couldn't hold a candle to other fur trading centers. It wasn't until around half a century later that the income from the trade would become lucrative. And so, for the time being, Detroit lived on but struggled as its population stagnated. Remember this point, as this is a problem that has resurged again in the modern day. In 1740, only 17 of the original 100 soldiers remained in Detroit. It wasn't until 1744 that France retook an interest in Detroit as a military asset when Britain and France declared war on one another. Detroit quickly became valuable, first as a staging area for Native American raiding parties and then as a defensive position for the French. 
In the end, however, the British captured Montreal and Detroit surrendered shortly thereafter. They took control of Detroit on November the 29th, 1760, though they were later obligated to relinquish it under the 1783 Treaty of Paris. Detroit was incorporated as a village in 1802, just three years before it became the capital of the newly created Michigan Territory. Following a devastating fire in 1805, it was rebuilt, but surrendered again to the British during the War of 1812. Americans eventually recaptured the territory in 1813. After the War of 1812, Detroit saw a significant boom. Detroit's harbor welcomed steamships to and from its waters. And the 1825 opening of the Erie Canal made transporting goods to and from Detroit easier than ever, thanks to the influx of grain and other agricultural goods into the city by rail and water. It quickly became one of the most important flour milling centers in the country processing and forwarding goods all across the United States and beyond to Europe. Detroit was incorporated as a city in 1815, and its manufacturing industries were particularly successful, with things such as steam engines, stoves, and furnaces. The end of the American Civil War in 1865 also marked the start of a significant shift in the city's primary economic source, from an agricultural staple to an industrial giant. But it didn't end there. The city also saw a rise in the pharmaceutical business. Actually, its industrial growth was so tremendous that it would kickstart one of the city's most dramatic rises in population over the next century, from 1850 to 1950, attracting many European and later African-American inhabitants. By the year 1880, Detroit had a population of over 116,000 people, representing more than 40 nationalities. The 20th century also saw the rise of the automobile industry and the start of Detroit's reputation as Motor City. It was primarily propelled by the rise of the big three, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, some of America's biggest automobile companies. Ford in particular helped pioneer a brand new form of factory assemblage. Henry Ford officially founded the company in 1903, by 1908, it was producing the Model T, for which demand was so high that it led to the introduction of the assembly line. Though one of its most significant contributions was the auto industry, the city also produced things such as paints, metal crafts, rail cars, brass, and copper. The city also saw many cultural developments, such as the Fox Theater and the Detroit Institution of Arts. By 1929, it was the fourth largest city in the country with a population of 1.6 million and 160,000 people working in the auto industry. The downtown area was full of life, from industrial buildings and hotels to theaters and opera houses. 1930 also saw the completion of the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel, the world's first and only international vehicular tunnel. However, trouble was on the horizon around this time, as the Great Depression took a tremendous toll on the bustling city. You see, because its economy depended so heavily on the auto industry, thousands of people were put out of work when auto sales declined. 
The economy's later recovery was primarily thanks to the auto plants being repurposed for World War II efforts, such as building tanks and missiles. This earned Detroit the name, quote, the arsenal of democracy. What's more, we can't discuss Detroit's most significant achievements without taking a look at Motown. The story of Motown began with its founder, Barry Gordy III. Gordy met and started writing songs for Jackie Wilson, leading to two hits, Reed Petite and Lonely Teardrops. This newfound success in songwriting led Gordy to begin scouting Detroit for new musical acts to promote. He discovered Smokey Robinson's band, The Miracles, in 1957, and at the same time started to lay the foundations for his record company. Gordy founded Tamla Records in Detroit, converting a two-story home of Detroit's Grand Boulevard into a dedicated recording studio and office, which he renamed Hitsville, USA. By the early 1960s, the label saw its first hit with Barry Strong's Money, that's what I want. From there, Gordy began to sign more and more acts, eventually renaming Tamla Records as Motown Records, with Motown coming from the words motor and town to honor the city's history. By 1964, Barry Gordy had signed artists such as Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and The Temptations, not to mention The Supremes. Gordy also hired many professional songwriters. Among them was Brian and Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier, who wrote hit songs you most likely know today, such as Please Mr. Postman and Stop in the Name of Love. Motown's unique characteristics also came from the house band that backed up the songs the label released, including the Funk Brothers and many more unsung musicians. However, in 1972, Gordy moved Motown's corporate headquarters to Los Angeles, which had become a central music industry hub. Despite the many outstanding achievements Detroit accomplished, however, trouble was looming on the horizon, and it had been that way since the 1950s. Let me explain. A material shortage after World War II profoundly affected the auto industry. The steel demand skyrocketed and automakers had to compete with many other businesses to get their supplies. There were also many strikes in the coal, copper, glass, and steel industries. These strikes and walkouts for poor treatment caused mass layoffs unemployment and specific factories to shut down for weeks and even months. Though work in automobile factories was lucrative when it was up and running, it was unreliable for workers in this period. At one point, it seemed there was hope. You see, the end of material rationing temporarily brought the auto industry back into swing from late 1952 to early 1953, though it quickly fell off again with the US's next recession. Layoffs returned, and with the start of automation, many more people lost their jobs. Overall, the auto industry was essentially a boom and bust industry for Detroit, but this was not the only problem the city faced. In the post-war period, many cities started to spread out. Detroit was no exception. The federal government's tax incentives and subsidiaries helped entice new families to move out of Detroit, and businesses followed soon after. Discriminatory practices against minority buyers were unfortunately not uncommon, further stoking the fires of racial tensions in the already segregated city. 
Two major riots occurred in 1943 and in 1967. Detroit's heavy reliance on automobiles as a part of its industrial landscape was a blessing and a curse. While it contributed significantly to the city's peak, it also led to rapid population decline and economic disaster. A disaster that would ultimately follow automotive decentralization. After the initial post-World War II expansion cooled off and Detroit's population and revenue started to fall, the city instituted its first income tax, doubling it just six years later. You see, in the early 1980s, a national recession strained the auto industry and only further spiraled the city's already poor finances. Income taxes would then raise again from 2% to 3%, and with them, thousands of workers would have their wages frozen. The city instituted a new utility tax in 1971 and a wagering tax in 1999, the more people left, the more tariffs the city created to stay afloat. Basically, the town became more expensive and less attractive for residents and businesses. Between 1950 and 1980, the city experienced a population loss of over 600,000. Abandoned factories and homes were both problematic and expensive to repair or remove, making it even more difficult to entice new businesses. This was an official downward spiral, with the city doubling its debts by 2012. Detroit's mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, also went down in history for all of his scandals. He was briefly incarcerated for obstruction of justice and was forced to resign in 2008, later finding himself accused of abusing his power in the mayor's office. Five years later, he was convicted of many counts, which included bribery, racketeering, and extortion, and these scandals only further corroded Detroit's image. In May of 2009, former Pistons star David Bing was elected to finish out the mayor's term. The job ahead of him was massive. By then, the city's population had already declined by one-fourth over the past 10 years alone. However, Bing only focused on more stable areas to entice more people to move in, shifting the city's much-needed money and attention away from distressed and poverty-stricken neighborhoods. The city's financial situation only continued to spiral downwards to the point where the governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder, appointed Kevin Orr as Detroit's emergency manager. Orr was given executive power to deal with the immense debt the city had fallen into. Unfortunately, he was unable to reach an agreement with the city's creditors. And so it was. The town was found eligible for bankruptcy in December of 2013, where it stayed for a year before emerging in 2014. Today, many buildings and former attractions still sit abandoned, but there remains a projected hope for a slow but eventual economic recovery. Between 2010 and 2019, around 708 new housing structures were constructed in Detroit. The U.S. Treasury Department has founded the removal of 15,000 homes and businesses foreclosed for years. Tax and spending policies have been used to push downtown development forward. Bond investors have also recently become interested in the city, providing yet another 
local revenue source. However, it's essential to note that Detroit still continually struggles with a high poverty rate and concerns regarding gentrification and population displacement. And whereas most images you might come across online suggest that Detroit looks like a hellish landscape, for lack of better words, I've actually heard that the city is lovely. So let me know the truth in the comments section below. And until next time, this is Ryan Sokash, signing off.